on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for Black Panther Wakanda forever. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep all the way to the bottom of the ocean into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture in this episode in the airlock. We're going to be diving deep into Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Rosie and I are going to talk about the characters, talk about the themes, talk about our thoughts about it, talk about some of the history. It's going to be fun. A return of the Omnibus segment. We're going to talk about uh, Wakanda, the Black Panther, and the Afrofuturism aesthetic movement. In the hive mind, we will be joined by author, sociologist, professor, poet, and writer of the acclaimed Ironheart comic for Marvel, Eve L. Ewing. I was just so excited for this. If you want to jump around, of course, check the show notes for the timestamps. Joining me today is the writer, comics encyclopedia. She is the heart-shaped herb. (laughs) (laughs) The great Rosie Knight. It's me. I'm here. I'm so, Yeah. yeah, this is so exciting. I mean, most anticipated movie of the year, probably. And here we are about to break it all down and talk about some of the amazing creators who made it possible and talk about this wild movie. And of course, like Thirst Over Namor. (laughs) Oh, Namor. So, okay, let's get into it. First up, recapping Black Panther Wakanda forever. We're stepping out of the airlock and into Talakan to discuss the latest installment of the MCU, the last film in Phase 4, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Here we go. The last film in Marvel's Phase 4, which is a wild thing to say. It opens in Wakanda. We're in Shuri's lab. Uh, The princess is frantically trying to synthesize a replacement for the heart-shaped herb, which was destroyed by Killmonger, of course, after he sees power in the first film. Uh, and Shuri needs this because T'Challa is terminally ill. The herb is his only chance to survive. Uh, she pushes through a formula to production. It's maybe only 30% effective. Griot, her AI, tells her. But before she can rush it to the king's bedside, Queen Ramonda appears and the king has passed. Uh, we, you know, this was the big question, right? Was how, they, mm-hmm. how are they going to handle it? And I thought they handled it with appropriate grace and and real sadness. I mean, yeah, there's a real gravitas. sadness. In there's, the, yeah. and, and there is a space within this for the actors and the friends of Chadwick to mourn Chadwick while mourning T'Challa. After this, we get this huge, you know, funeral scene. It's a celebration. It's a mourning. And then boom, a year later, and we yeah. see the fallout. One year later, French commandos are raiding a Wakandan science facility. Uh, they force the the workers there to open up a vault, but it is a trap. 
out stride Okoye, Ao, Aneka, and uh, other Dora Milaje who are who are disguised as the as the scientists there, and they easily best these commandos. Uh, later, at a closed session of the U- United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland, American and French officials are just tearing into uh, Queen Ramonda. They are saying that Wakanda has not lived up to its obligations to the international community, I guess. Wakanda had promised uh, to to share like vibranium technology at, at the, some point in the-, the end of Black Panther, and this is one of the the spanners that had, yeah. was thrown into the works with everything like the tragedies that happened during the two movies. The end of Black Panther opens with this idea of Wakanda being a nation right. that will be open, will be part of the global community, will share technology, was going to open a STEM school in Oakland. Right. You know, that was influenced that by Killmonger. That doesn't mean we're going to give you vibranium. And also, like, they're greedy. This is, they're greedy, and it's yeah, going to yeah. cause a big problem for everyone. Uh, now, of course, vibranium, as, as we are going to see over the course of this movie and as we saw in Black Panther, is a it's a wonder substance. It's not only... A metal, right? It has a staggering number of applications. It's easily workable. It can be an indestructible uh, substance, but it can also absorb, store, and amplify energy. It can give people superpowers, on and on and on and on. And the rest of the world is like, hey, uh, share this stuff. And Wakanda rightly has said no yeah especially uh, because they keep talking about how it can be used to make weapons they they're acting like that that's what they would love scares to do, of them course. but really that's what they want it for they want to make weapons of mass destruction with wakanda uh, with vibranium yeah and the queen says we're not going to do that because the rest of the world can't be trusted with vibranium uh whether wakanda has ever actually again formally agreed to share this substance unclear but would love to learn more about like why the world thinks this whatever mm-hmm. the case uh it, we all understand she made the right decision and certainly the world does when she then parades the captured commandos into the hall the chastened french ambassador it's unclear whether the french ambassador would have had any idea that this was happening. It's like, unclear you know, who like, it is, but they say that yeah. it was someone who was from a member state. And it's, then yeah, right. the French right. ambassador who'd been kind of really pushing for this is like, is oh shit, I guess, like, oh. I guess we've done bad stuff. Uh, and the queen promises a harsh response if the world ever again violates Wakandan Sovereignty. Later, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, there is a boat of CAA scientists protected by, uh, as Tony might say, JSOC guys. <laughs> uh, and they have uh, discovered a deposit of vibranium deep under the under the ocean. Uh, it is, at this point, the only known deposit of the material outside of Wakanda. Uh, scientists in diving suits are going in for a closer look, but soon mysterious warriors are appearing out of the waves, and one of these with uh, wings on his feet snatches a helicopter out of the air, hurls it into the sea, and uh, we can, we're led to believe that all the scientists, everybody on this boat, has been neutralized, yeah, we- a.k.a. Killed. And we hear a siren song and we yeah. see these men just throwing themselves off the ocean, right. off the boat into it's the ocean. It's not just a brood attack. They're, these uh, these people are able to somehow take over people's minds and yeah, draw them into the water. Yeah, sonic hypnotization that 
like the, the siren song yeah, of, of it's ancient Mermaids, Greek mythology. Baby, yeah. Which, like, I'm really <laughs> glad that they're leaning into that because everyone's always said it. It's a merman. In Wakanda, uh, the queen is worried about her daughter, Princess Shuri. Shuri is taking T'Challa's death very, very hard. She blames herself, essentially, for not, not being able to save him. Uh, queen Ramonda takes Shuri to the bush uh, and... There, the queen burns her ceremonial funeral gown, and she wants Shuri to do the same. But Shuri can't move on. She can't let go. She says that if anything's going to burn, it's going to be the world, which is alarming. (laughs) At that moment, a man with winged feet emerges from the river nearby. It's our friend Namor. We get a good look at him now. He's looking good. He's looking really, really great. Uh, He somehow managed to evade Wakanda's cutting edge, cutting, cutting edge border defenses, of which we have seen over the course Mm -hmm. of, you know, various movies by now. Um, He tells them that his nation, Talakan, also has vibranium. They, too, kept themselves hidden from the world, have kept themselves successfully hidden from the world. But Wakanda's, Wakanda's emergence... And her decision to reveal the existence of vibranium has – the knock-on effect of that is it's awakened the world's greed for yeah. vibranium. And they want to find that, vibranium. They want to find yes. the source of it for themselves. They want to find new sources, which is going to definitely play in to the future of the MCU. Absolutely. As well as just the ramifications of Namor now existing and being rightfully pissed. So led by – Brand new technology that can detect that can detect vibranium. The U.S. military has come poking around uh, in the ocean near Talakan's hiding place, and Namor says Wakanda has to take responsibility for the mess that it helped create. Wakanda should ally itself with Talakan and demonstrate that friendship. How? By uh, killing that scientist or capturing that scientist and bringing them to Talakan so that uh, Talakan can then kill the scientist. Um, and it's either that or Namor promises that we're going to attack mm-hmm. Wakanda, bring it to its knees. Okay, bye. And then <laughs> Namor disappears under the water and he leaves the the uh, yes. undersea vibranium detector for, for Wakanda to... to uh, kind of investigate into to analyze. Look, I just have to say, he's he's an old man. He's rightfully angry, in my opinion. Very, yeah? very he, he might be, he's coming to them with a little bit of aggression, but this is the first of many times that Namor makes the correct offer to Wakanda that they should ally themselves. They should ally themselves. And nobody wants to listen to Namor and so much of the horror of this movie could be absolutely avoided if Wakanda was just real about the outside world and the strength of allying with Talakan. We will uh, we will unpack that later. I have I have I think one of the wonderful subtexts of this movie is that Wakandan leadership. Listen, we love the queen. I love Shuri. T'Challa, may he rest in peace. I do think that Specifically, post mm-hmm. the re- Wakandan reveal to the world, I think Wakandan uh, decision making has been spotty at best. Spoil- we, uh, Look, that's the problem uh, of the monarchy, baby. We're going to hey, get into that's it. That's the problem of the monarchy. <laughs> you know, should we have just been like, okay, Killmonger's the guy now, and I guess we got to do everything he said? Like, and I the think Dora there should have been- on his side. <laughs> you know? I think like- there, ne- there needed to be mechanisms 
by which to say, no, we're not just going to destroy all the heart-shaped herb now. Like, wait, <laughs> hold on a second. Seems anyway, bad. It seems bad. Um, Okoye gets the identity of the scientist from her contact in the CIA, the Wakanda's man in the CIA, Everett Ross. Ooh. The CIA agent and colonizer has been feeding Okoye intelligence for years, apparently. Uh, the scientist's name is Riri Williams, Woo! a 19-year-old student at MIT. Shuri, against the queen's wishes— goes with Okoye on the uh, ostensibly snatch and grab, a kidnapping mission, right? But but uh, Shuri is saying, hey, I'm a brilliant scientist. Also, maybe I, I can talk to this person mm-hmm. and convince them to help us, actually. They confront Riri. Uh, the sudden appearance of a princess of Wakanda uh, and, a, and a general of the Wakandan military uh, lets Riri know that actually this is very serious. Like, Riri is very concerned that, oh, shit, did I piss off Wakanda? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? You would like well, invented I do want to say something that, that could like, detect vibranium. One of my favorite things is that she's like, did you make this for the CIA? Shuri asks her, like, why did you do that? And she's like, no, I made it for homework. I made it for my metallurgy right. class. Like, that lets you know that Riri is one of the most intelligent people in the Marvel Universe, in the MCU. She did this. She created this thing as a as a homework Assignment. As a homework and it assignment, just took her a couple of months. It wasn't even and, that and, deep. And one of the concerns raised by the uh, the ambassadors to the UN is that this vibranium cannot be to de- detected by any existing technology. Mm-hmm. Metal detectors don't pick it up. You can use it. You can make a bomb out of vibranium and then just walk it into the airport, right? Um, but here. Riri Williams has figured out a way to detect vibranium. So this is a big deal. Um, she takes uh, Shuri and Okoye to her lab nearby. But before she can show them her, you know, her, her research into the, uh, the vibranium detector, um, the FBI surrounds the building. There's a big chase with Shuri and Okoye, uh, you know, on the streets and Riri in her homebrew Stark Tech-inspired Ironheart Mark I battle suit, which gets its debut here. Uh, but on a bridge over the Charles River, the Talakanil uh, ambush our trio of heroes. Okoye's fighting skills are world-class, of course, but the Talakanil are super humanly strong, very, very hard to kill. And Shuri ends up convincing them to take her captive along with Riri to their king so that she can argue for Riri's life. Rosie, tell us more about uh, Riri Williams. Yeah, I mean, this is such an exciting addition because this is probably one of, if not the quickest transitions we've seen from a character being introduced. Riri was introduced in 2016's Invincible Iron Man number seven from volume three, created by Brian Michael Bendis and Mike Diodato. So that's only six years between then and now her making her MCU debut. In then, she's kind of like what we see in the movie, though in the comics, she was a little bit younger. She was 15. She was an MIT student, super genius, who in the comics built her own version of uh, Tony Stark's Mark 41 suit as a pet project. And she did that while he was missing, presumed dead, and he was actually undercover in Madripoor. And that was in the lead up to Road to Civil War II, and she would eventually uh, appear in that event. She was in some other comics that were tied to it, like Guardians of the Galaxy. 
but wouldn't debut as Ironheart until the first issue of the fourth volume of Invincible Iron Man, which was that famous cover where she's in the suit and it says, you know, Ironheart on the cover. That story stuck to this idea. She's from Chicago. It's got a little bit of an early Mars Morales-ness to it, a.k.a. her story was quite... It leaned into some tropes. She'd been in trouble at school. The police were going to arrest her because she'd, I will say, salvaged the parts to make the Iron Heart suit. So really, the version of Riri that we are seeing now is the Eve Ewing expanded holistic version that was introduced in the 2018 solo Ironheart series with uh, originally drawn by Kevin Lebranda and then Luciano Vecchio and Jeffo did some uh, pencils and layouts. And that was where Ironheart became a Marvel legend. That was the story that made people fall in love with her. That was the story that showed that she was a super genius who was also a normal teenager who had this unbelievable relationship with Tony Stark that was this mentorship, this this beautiful space where she could be the smartest, most impressive version of herself with someone who was her peer. We know in the MCU, Tony is dead. R.I.P. Sorry yes. to that man. But <laughs> in in Eve's uh, in Eve's Ironheart story, in issue nine, uh, Tony arranges for it for um, Riri to visit Shuri in Wakanda. And obviously what we're seeing in the movie here is leaning more into that. Riri's relationship is not one of a mentor with Tony in the MCU. It is one of a a burgeoning partnership and alliance with Wakanda, with Shuri, with one of the only people in the whole of the MCU who can go toe-to-toe with her on an intelligence level. And it's very exciting to just see her be thrown into this wild world. And as you said, you know, about to go to Talakan. Well, in a vast cavern under the ocean, Shuri meets Kukulkan, who the Talakanil worship as their god and whose enemies call Namor. When he... uh, We'll pause there because I just want to say that when, when, when Namor explains the origin of his name, I was like, whoever came up with this is the smartest person. Yeah. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Unbelievable. We will get to that. Yeah, just one of the coolest (laughs) origin of a name, one of the most smart recontextualizations which this series, the Black Panther movies, have been known for. But it is, it's like gasp out loud good. It was amazing. So he tells Shuri of the history of himself and his people. Over 500 years ago, native people around what is now called the Yucatan Peninsula were dying of smallpox brought to the land by Spanish conquistadors. Uh, One of uh, the shamans of the indigenous people has a vision that leads them to find a a plant in a cavern underwater. Looks very Uh, much like the... The heart-shaped herb, right? Slightly different in color, maybe a little blue in color, but looks to be the same. And the people create a kind of potion out of this plant. They ingest it. It protects them against the smallpox, but it also turns their skin blue and takes away from them the ability to to breathe air, but gives them the ability to breathe underwater. Uh, Namor's mother, who is pregnant at the time, uh, had to be persuaded to take the plant, but she does. And her child is born with uh, amazing abilities that are uh, beyond what mm-hmm. the Talakanil have. Uh, and he becomes the leader 
the king, the god, in fact, to his people. Years later, following his mother's dying wish, uh, Kakul Khan returns to his mother's human village to lay her remains to rest, and there he finds that the Spanish have enslaved the uh, local indigenous people. Uh, in in retribution, he slays them, and, and he's one like priest, eight, by the way. Like he looks he's like, like he's like old. eight, but he's probably yeah, like he, fifty or something. Like, but he right. looks like a baby. Yeah, so he slays the conquistadors, and as one uh, dying priest uh, looks upon him, uh, you know, with fear. The priest says that this this boy describes the boy as el niño sin amor, the boy without love. And from this namor, Kukulkan takes his name of war. And it, I was like, holy shit, that's it's good. <laughs> so clever. And my favorite thing about yeah. it is like at first it sounds a little bit like emo and it's kind of like he has no love because his heart's broken and his mother is right not on. there. And but no, but really, he has no he, love for he, the surface He world. has no love for the surface world. That's like the hardest shit in the MCU. I it's could so not believe it. Good. It I'm just obsessed. so good. And yes. to be able to recontextualize, like we haven't even really gotten in. Namor is, you know, one of Marvel's oldest characters. Debuted in like 1939. And has throughout history been entangled in some of the more problematic and racist depictions of uh, characters of color and like Marvel's own fear of especially like Asian communities and this idea of an Asian superpower. And ironically, some of that actually makes the old Namor stuff. Some of the panels are quite radical and you see this kind of like interesting subversion yeah. of what they thought Time they were to doing. Time war against the, uh, the white race. Yeah, yeah, like he's on his mission to kill the white man or whatever. Like, But I love that they took this name that was given to him, you know, the Submariner name or always been quite a character of people being like, oh, he's wearing some pants. He's got wings on his. He's quite silly. He's quite campy. And to create an origin for that name that is so directly linked to this brilliant recontextualization and this very, what feels very authentic to the conversations that are being had and the, and the realities of the horror of colonialism is just so cool. Like that, that is just a level of craft and detail in writing that just cannot go uncelebrated. So I'm glad it's, that we, it was, it I'm was glad we brought beautiful. it up. It's so good. It was beautiful. The queen travels to Haiti where Nakia is running a school. She has lived there apparently since the blip, uh, devastated by T'Challa's death. She just couldn't bring herself to return to Wakanda, not even for his funeral. The queen convinces Nakia to, uh, to you know, bring back her super spy skills and track down Princess Shuri who is, who is missing and, and in the hands of T'Challa Canil. Meanwhile... Everett Ross's new boss, the Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, is all over his ass. The CIA director wants Riri found. She wants to know how the Wakandans, because who else would do this, tracked her down. And the Contessa also wants to start thinking about how we can respond, how we can start destabilizing Wakanda. Also... She's Ross's ex-wife. Very interesting because in the very, comics, very interesting. her romantic entanglement was with Nick Fury. And we Nicholas were very Fury. interested to see if that was going to come up. But it seems that they've decided to do like these little CIA romance. Terrible. Hate it. Hate it for both of them. But you know what? Ross comes out I, of this looking better out of the pair. <laughs> I will say also, in the annals of We Were Right, it's not quite We Were Right, but... Over the course of this movie, our theory that 
the Contessa's plan is to create the superhero team that follows orders, yes. you know, is is burnished by her actions in this movie. Yeah, and we, you know, we we definitely got some We Were Right stuff that we got into, but that's true. Also very interesting to see that something I was wary about that we've talked about is like the Thunderbolts has to be a villain team. It doesn't really make sense otherwise. Mm-hmm. But the way that they built in, I understand the expanding this Black Panther universe to have to fit into the rest of the MCU, I think is some of the stuff people have been struggling the most with, with like the focus on Ross and, and Contessa. And I totally agree. But what I did really like, credit to Ryan uh, and his his co-scriptor, she's a villain. Like, no question, oh, flat out. absolute villain. I feel like flat in out. the TV shows, they were doing more of a, is she just like a different way of running things? But no, she's the director of the CIA, yeah. and she sucks. She's putting together the the Avengers team, quote-unquote Avengers team, that is soldiers, mm-hmm. that are people that will just like decapitate people in the street. Yeah. Ross finds Shuri's uh, beads, communication beads, under some wreckage at the attack site in Boston. And he uses them to warn the queen that the U.S. government might be preparing to do something, to move against Wakanda in some sort of way. Um, in Talakan, under the sea, Namor takes Shuri to Talakan, and the culture and the beauty of the place and the obvious strength and the unity of its people just blows her away. Uh, she asks the king if she can take Riri back to Wakanda and she promises that there she's going to advocate strongly on Talakan's behalf. Namor is like, I've got a counter deal. Wakanda allies itself with Talakan and side by side we wage war against the nations of the surface world. And he makes some good points. He says, and defang them so they can never again yep. threaten either of us. And enslave Do us that and, and oppress and us. Yeah, He's enslave making us some good points. Take our, take our resources, sure et cetera. Uh, Colonize us. Sure he's not Do necessarily. Do She, I feel like this is a character beat that I understand for the sh- movie's sake, but I do feel like Shuri would be the one person who would be most open to this. But she is quite horrified because she's like, well, lots of people didn't do anything bad up there. And I don't know if we would want to do that. I I think in Shuri's, you know, listen, allying, I think, is a good idea. Waging war against the entire surface world, which is very in line with Namor's character history and a thing that he has done time and time and time and time again in the comics for mm-hmm. for various reasons, some of them actually pretty just reasons. Like, I get it. Um, would... There are other ways to do it. Yes. Like, I don't need... We, I, we like, you know, to, to Shuri's credit, the idea of just jumping straight out to mm-hmm. a, a state of active warfare against the entire world, probably not a great idea. Yeah. But also... You can see how this is going to lead the nations of the world to hate superpowered people, and in particular, superpowered people like Namor, who, by the way, are mutants. I was going to say we we should say this. We should say this. We've heard the word mutation. We've been waiting for someone to be called a mutant. Namor says, "I was a mutant." He says, "I am a mutant." He says the word. He means in the context of his community. Yes. And the truth is that, you know, Jason, you really smartly brought this up uh, in in pre-pro, but like 
Namor is not the only mutant. He might see himself that way because he is a mutant in comparison to his people who he can be above land, he can be underwater, they can only exist under the water. Right. But his whole community are mutants and apparently They're got that mutants. mutation Mutated by from a vibranium-rich yes. soil and the plant which allowed them to become mutants. This is very interesting and I think there is a world where we see that come into play down the line to introduce more mutated characters. We know that we're not going to get an Inhumans in this world. Miss Marvel kind of proved that we're not there yet. This is going to be a mutant situation. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a version of the plant or vibranium-rich soil or something that could be turned into some kind of mist, almost like a Terrigen mist, and weaponized yes. to create multiple That's a great point. mutants. Because I think what we're seeing, you know, they didn't kind of spell this out, but my guess for why Namor has his abilities is he had the X gene just mm -hmm. passed to him by his parents, right? And something about the active ingredient in this plant, this vibranium-based plant, awakened that and and supercharged yeah. his powers. All of which is to say mutants are here and they are here now in vast numbers uh, in the form of the Talakanil. We're talking about thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people, maybe more, living in, in uh, Talakan. As a symbol of uh, Namor's word, right, and, you know, the generosity of his offer, you know, in his view, he gives Shuri a bracelet, which is woven from the very plant which gave the Telekinel their powers. That belonged to his mother. So this is a very yes. intimate moment. And I will say they must have chemistry tested the fuck out of Letitia and Tenoch, who plays... Uh, Namor, because there is such an unbelievable spark between them, these children of these hidden nations. It's like res a, a respect. It's respect, but there's like a slight, a bond, there's a bond, a, yeah. but there's like a slight flirtation, but it's not necessarily yeah. romantic. It's more of a, it's like they spark each other's curiosity. And the whole time I was watching it, I was just thinking like, when Sue Storm comes into the MCU, Tenoch oh is going to be... It's happening. Do it in the first movie. It needs to be there oh because that is... The way that they play with that relationship, his performance is the standout for me in this film. It He's is amazing. mind-blowing. He establishes everything this you want. charisma, this, this danger, this relatability. Arrogance, like real arrogance, arrogance. Real arrogance, but based on like legit reasons. Yeah, like just like for a is, just reason. For a just reason, but also because he is probably the most powerful person yeah. on earth apart from as he will learn like the black panther you know so uh, yeah i was just blown away by him and the the talican stuff was really my my favorite part of this movie and i just kept thinking about him and Letitia were so good together in those small moments that they had i was like i need to see him with sue storm i need to see him break up the marriage because sure yeah. he's stronger person than me I would have been like, yes, let's do the war. I I'm cool with it, man. <laughs> and we should add, unless unless we're to, unless we find out that apocalypse is out here, which may might be yeah. the case, right? This is the first, the mutant. first mutant. This is the first mutant. And they not just that years, they the made him five hundred years old. So you're right. talking about a first mutant. It's not hundred years old, not hundred and twenty years old. This is a mutant who has lived in what is essentially a secluded secret society. We were right. Secret societies are a huge deal going into secret wars. Um, and not only that, but he potentially has a, a Morlocks-esque community of secret mutants. So look, all we're saying is 
this is a secret society of mutants that nobody knew about even in the age of the Avengers. So there's probably other secret societies of mutants that are hidden in this world. Well, you know, 500 years, this also, in the comics, Namor has this whole mm-hmm. history before his appearance, you know, fighting the Fantastic Four, you know, in, in the Silver Age of comics, uh, as a fighter in World War Two. Mm-hmm. all of which is to say is 500 years gives you a lot of back centuries that they could fill in in various ways. Is this the first time that uh, Namor has has uh, interacted with the surface world? I'm going to guess not. I'm going to mm-hmm. guess there's other things that we're going to find out that he has been involved in. Uh, later, Nakia having discovered uh, the site of uh, Namor's mother's village uh, finds out where Shuri and Riri have been taken and she she gets there, goes under the sea to the cavern where they're being held, and she goes to break them out. She kills two telekinel guards in the process and Shuri is like, oh my God, we got to save this person's life. And Nikki is like, no, we have to leave right now. And Shuri knows that to take the lives of two telekinel like this means that war between the telekinel and Wakanda is going to happen. And in Shuri's defense, I love this. This is a true moment of leadership. She tries to use the Kimoa beads to save the lives of the Talakanil guards. And in one of the few mistakes that Nakia makes, because she's generally like one of the smartest people in Wakanda, she doesn't listen to Shuri. And that is like a, a heartbreaking moment because it leads to this kind of huge conflict that could have been avoided. Now, Wakanda steals itself for the blow, but when Namor arrives, the most advanced nation of the surface world, their defenses are completely worthless against only a handful of Namor's warriors. Tidal waves devastate the capital city. Talakinil warriors leap from the backs of whales to lay waste to the streets. Uh, uh, But all of this is a distraction to allow uh, Namor to strike at Queen Ramonda. Uh, She gives her life to save Riri, uh, and it's a heartbreaking moment. Shuri finds her mother now passed, like this has just happened moments before, and Namor tells Shuri, mourn your dead. I'll be back in a week. You're queen now. It's your decision about how to lead the nation next. I'll be back with your decision about whether you're going to ally with my people. And if the answer is no, just so you know, I'm going to when I come back in a week, it's going to be at the head of my entire army, not just a handful of my warriors. As queen, Shuri just wants vengeance. Mm-hmm. We, we heard it, you know, earlier in the movie that she wanted the world to burn because of her feelings of the surrounding the death of T'Challa. But, and now this has sharpened those feelings to a really keen killing and dangerous edge. M'Baku tries to talk her out of it. Uh, you know, the, the Wandans, he, uh, he notes that the, t- the Talakanil consider Namor their god. If you kill their god, the war will never end. The war mm-hmm. will be existential. It will be my children, my children's children. It's a it will go on war. and it will go on and on and on until one of our nations perishes. Yeah. And Shuri's like, that's fine. She's like, it wasn't my can mother win. worth it. And also just yeah, want to shout out Winston Duke, so good. It, Embarku, so good still a standout. 
there's a great standout. One of the best moments, like the biggest laugh moments in this really somber movie is like he walks into the council eating a carrot and calls Okoye a bold-headed demon. And it is like our whole cinema just lost its shit. Like I want to see more M'Baku. I love him. I love that recontextualization of the character. Winston Duke, you are king. Thank you. And without Winston Duke, I don't know if we would have got like thick Namor. You know, I feel like yes. I feel like we would have gotten like this cut, cut Hemsworthian yeah. potentially. Winston changed the the idea of like what a Marvel character can look like, and and you know people love him for it, and and he's delightful, and I'm just so happy that that Namor is more in that mold of like a just like a chunky, strong guy. We need more of them. I, I absolutely love it. Um, using the bracelet that Namor gave her, she successfully synthesizes, um, you know, a, a kind of heart-shaped or based on the talicinal plant, which is a biochemical twin of the heart-shaped herb. She takes that potion herself and goes to visit the ancestral plane, but it's not the ancestral plane. She finds herself in the flooded throne room, a version of you know, the ancestral mm-hmm. plane version of that destroyed Very interesting throne room that she in the Wakanda capital city. Yeah. And she wakes up underwater after using wakes the Talakanil plant. I think that we cannot underestimate That's a great point. the importance of this essentially being a combined version of the heart shape herb and whatever the, the plant of the Talakanil is. I'm I'm very interested to see where that leads. So she finds herself in the throne room. She's behind the throne. Someone's sitting in it. She walks to the front of it, and we're thinking it's going to be the queen or it's going to be T'Challa. It's Killmonger. Oh, my cinema just absolutely lost its mind lost last it. night, it like a- screaming. That was like, that's the big, you know, the Spider-Man. There were so many of those moments. This yeah. is that moment where people just lost their mind. Michael B. Jordan delivering as always. And I love the reasoning of him being there. Yeah, and Killmonger knows that Shuri wanted to see him. That's why That's he's the there. She chose. She wanted, and he knows it's because he is the one person who will agree with what she wants to yeah. do next, which is wipe out the Talakanil. Namor must die. And when she wakes up, Nakia is like. Where'd you go? Who'd you see? Would you talk? You know, what was the ancestral plane like? Who'd you talk to? And Shuri's like, I'm not talking about it. She's like, I failed. And then she just like smashes up the lab and obviously has super strength. So it's like, I think it worked, babe. Yeah, it worked. (laughs) Uh, Valentina breaks into Everett Ross's house to arrest him. She had the beads bugged from the very beginning. She heard everything Ross has told the Wakandans. And Ross is like, yeah, well, the Wakandans are awesome. And they saved my life. So and they're right. Uh, so I guess I'm going to jail. Ross says it would be terrible to imagine what the United States, what other countries would do, but specifically the United States would do if it controlled vibranium all by itself. And the Contessa is like, well, you're going to prison for the rest of your life. And by the way, I dream of a day when we control vibranium. That's when you we know can it's do the, whatever it's the we villain want with moment. vibranium. She's obsessed yes. with power. She's obsessed with owning this resource, with colonizing Wakanda, and with using it for her own nefarious means. And uh, uh, by the way, a very a, a a very juicy 
and vibrant plot from various Marvel comics mm-hmm. throughout the years. Like the world is greedy for yeah. the, the resources that were coming. And I has. think as well, this is I'm not a huge fan of Everett Ross in the MCU, but I do think this scene is the closest we've gotten to the Christopher Priest stuff that we talk about in the omnibus. I agree. Where yeah. it's about Ross understanding who the Wakandans are, his awakening to them, and the sacrifice that he will make at, because he realizes what the right thing to do is. Most of, I feel like that has been mostly a misunderstanding of his character in the MCU, but this is the closest I feel like that we get in this moment. Shuri, now clad as the Black Panther, leads her people to war, and her plan is to take Riri's detector out to sea, use it as bait to lure the Talakanil to attack, and then they'll trap Namor inside like a flying microwave, and they will dry his ass out. Um, here's where I just want to put a pin in this and discuss it. So, <laughs> it, um, we, you know, again, I think Wakanda needs better leadership at times. It is a I think I think some of the I think some of the decision making process is not good. And I would like to highlight that Riri's plan is to fight the fish people on water. They could have just <laughs> they could have literally just fought him on a different bit of land that wasn't Wakanda. Like they could I have mean, just yeah, you didn't need to fight him on water where all his people are coming. They got crazy underwater technology they have these un something that is really cool that this movie introduces and i think is very unique is these water bombs that kind of yeah explode. they're really cool it's really cool i will say if you enjoy the the namor stuff here you enjoy the talakanil please go and watch james wan's aquaman because i do feel like that movie yeah. this movie would not exist without that and a lot of the stuff they do in that movie is definitely influential but i really felt like the the idea of this uh Talakanil technology and the bombs and everything is very unique and very visually beautiful. But why did she want to fight him at the sea? I guess I, I, I would I get, say... You, I get that you had to lure him, but, but you know what? Like, I, I fight think, him on the sea? I think the idea of... And, and this is something I would have liked to see expanded a little bit, but it leans into Shuri's comic book uh, canon, especially the run when she becomes Black Panther, you know, the Reginald Hudlum run. Um, she is at this point not making sensible decisions. She is... She's absolutely angry. obsessed she's very, with very revenge. Yeah. She's consumed with it. And that leads her to make this very silly decision that does kind of end up working out, but it not, kind of works. Not, not a great idea, babe. Well, uh, well, it kind of works, I would add. So there's a big battle, right? They go out to see the, the Talakanil are, are, uh, are alerted to the presence of this vibranium detector in the water. News gets to Namor. He leads his forces against them. Riri debuts the Ironheart Mark II. Which, which she was is building fucking, in a montage she was scene building in Wakanda. Very powerful. Looks super cool. Probably made of vibranium. Yeah, probably made of vibranium. Okoya and Neka fight in two brand new Shuri designed uh, pieces of Wakandan battle armor. Also, clearly, like vibranium tech, very powerful. Shuri gets Namor in the microwave, and the two get separated from the main fight uh, where Okoye, Ao, Neka, Mbaku, and the rest of the Wakandans are at sea, trapped on their ship, fighting off the Talakanil. And I should add that, you know, though the plan, again, the plan. Shuri's plan kind of works. What, like 800 Wakandans die in this? I like, was going to say, they, they, by they just the get, end, they get wiped out. There's by like the end, there's like 12 Wakandans. Yeah, I was going to say, there's like 12 people who say, Wakanda forever. And I'm like, babe, you could have avoided all you of this. You lost like 800 people. Also, I know and, you could have made more of that armor for like the, the Midnight Angel or whatever <laughs> it was called. You know, like 
eh, is not the best plan. So Shuri's microwave plane crashes uh, in the desert because Namor, even in a weakened state, is extremely powerful. And he's, he, uses, he has a he has a spear made of raw vibranium, yes. not processed, and he cra- he uses it to crash the plane. And he's potentially again like as strong as the Hulk in the water, probably stronger. Yeah. Um, you know. I guess the Hulk theoretically could get as strong as he wants, the angrier he gets. But like Hulk level, class 100 level strength. And is Namor, they mention this very briefly, but I think it's really interesting. Namor is covered in vibranium. They always say that. Yeah. I don't, everything that he wears, his 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 jewels, his, his, his kind of costume, whatever it is, that's all covered in vibranium. So he has a similar energy signature power kind of vibe to a Black Panther who is wearing a vibranium suit. So they fight in the desert, and it is a brutal, brutal fight, but even a dried-out, partially weakened Namor is incredibly powerful, more powerful than the Black Panther. He impales her on his vibranium spear and then goes to stagger back to sea. Shuri frees herself, and the two square off again. We get the fucking—we get— I screamed. We get Namor I screamed. saying "Imperious Rex" in his in his language, and I, it was like, yeah, the, that's I his mean, the famous like, comic book battle cry. That's yeah. it's it's iconic because everyone's like, "What does that even mean?" And they no only one knows like, what it they means. only really like got into it recently. But it this shows the absolute power of this movie, which is this word, these combination of words that's so comic booky and so pulpy. When Tenoch says it in the Talakanil language, and looks kind of looks towards the screen it feels just like fuck like we're seeing something unbelievable here it was so so cool shuri then you think they're gonna fight again but then shuri crosses arms says wakanda forever and she triggers the blasters of her crashed ship like the thrusters and just bakes anymore and <laughs> very flame. very it- brutal some baked fish here, maybe with a little breadcrumb mm-hmm. on top. It'd be delicious. Shuri then stands over Namor. He is, he could die potentially right now. Uh, just as Killmonger, dis- you know, the moment that Killmonger described in her vision in the ancestral plane, it's here now. Shuri then reflects on everything that she has lost. Um, and she hears the queen telling her that now she needs to show Namor, who and, she is. And this is a huge deal because Shuri doesn't believe the ancestral plane exists. Right. She barely believes that the Killmonger thing was real. She just thinks it's something she needed to see. And we see Ramonda in the traditional ancestral plane talking to Shuri saying, show him who you are. Uh, she stands over him and she makes him this offer. She will, she as queen ally Wakanda with the Talakanil. The Wakandans will protect the seas for the Talakanil, protect the surface, uh, you know, around uh, where Talakan is. Will keep their secrets. Keep their secrets. But Namor must yield, promise to stop pursuing Riri, and promise to not wage war against the surface world. Uh, Namor yields and the Talakanil return home. Yeah, there's this really, this is one of my most powerful, like, chills moments. They fly down, uh, the the Wakanda's about to be killed, there's only like 14 of them left, and Namor and Shuri come down 
on this plane together and they sort of, you know, they say... 800 Wakandans fucking yeah, dead. dead. <laughs> and they say, like, Talakanil rise, Wakanda forever, and Talakanil go home. This shows really, I have to say, on your point, the monarchy of Wakanda has a problem, yeah? Because the well, real well, truth is, Shuri could have avoided that 800 deaths by just having a little combo, making this offer before something, I feel like. But I understand that Namor needed to see the strength of the Black Panther he needed to understand to see that, the, yes, that they were the strength a worthy and ally. But still, RIP to those I, I Wakandans. I will say this. It will be a problem going forward. There will be hardline... Yes. Factions yes. of both the Talakanil and the Wakandans who go, that's it? No, we. this is not mm-hmm. over. Certainly the Wakandans are going to say, "We." some Wakandans are going to say, we lost how many soldiers and now we just let it and go. No, queen no, no, no. we're going to pursue this. They attacked our capital city. We lost the queen and now 800 soldiers dead. No, we're mm-hmm. pursuing this to the end. So this is going to be an issue going forward. Wakanda rebuilds, Riri returns to MIT, but the Ironheart armor has to stay in Wakanda. That's pretty wise. Uh, Nakia returns to Haiti in Talakan. Nomura is giving Namor shit for kneeling to the Wakandans. And he's like, no, 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 trust me. This is fucking great because Mm -hmm. here's why. We're allied with the strongest nation in the surface world by far. And one day the rest of the surface world is going to attack Wakanda. They're isolated. They have no friends. They have no – we're their only friend and they will wage war against Wakanda. And when that happens – Wakanda and Talakan together will defeat the surface world. Love that. Great plan. Shuri uh, blows off her official coronation at Warrior Falls to go to Haiti. And there she burns her funeral garb, just as her mother wanted her to. In America, Okoye frees Everett Ross from custody. He is coming back to Wakanda with everyone. And in the stinger... Uh, In Haiti, Shuri burns her funeral garb and Nakia introduces her to her son, T'Challa's son, Prince T'Challa, who looks to be about six years old. What a movie. Uh, Your quick thoughts. Yeah. uh, Very emotional, beautiful cinematography, great performances. My biggest takeaway is no more. I I absolutely adored the Talakanil stuff. I I really want to know more about no more. I think it set him up as a true, you know, we talked about this before, but Killmonger is right was such a huge thing coming off Black Panther. I feel like with Namor, it's like 5,000 times stronger argument. And I'm really, I, I, I wish there'd been a little bit more Namor. I think she's incredible. Also very ironic because a lot of the inspiration here was probably taken from Namor number one, the original yeah. uh, introduction of that character from the Golden Age, set in a Mayan underground secret society. They worship a god, uh, Kukul Khan, you know, so a lot of inspiration was taken from that. I'd like to see more of Namor, uh, Namor but I like that conflict they set up between the two of them where he Same. might be he might end up as more of the Charles and she ends up as more of the Magneto also will say look I love the X-Men yeah but I feel like currently Namor is really gonna be that Magneto style figure for oh, the MCU going forward he, see that. he has that direct action the politics or that are yeah. right but the the way that he will approach it is not going to make everyone happy. Yeah, very yeah. emotional, great performances, beautiful cinematography, and Namor, I, I love you. I'm, I'm so excited to see more. I can't. I'm very, very excited for more Namor. Up next, the omnibus. Crooked Coffee is all about making your life a little less chaotic. So we just launched three limited edition holiday boxes to make gift giving easy. What's in each box, you say? 
Well, coffee. But what what else? Well, how about this? A full-size bag of delicious medium and dark roast coffee plus a fun activity this and scrolling through Twitter. Pick from three different boxes for three types of people. The extremely online box with magnetic poetry for your fridge. The craft lover's box with a learn to crochet kit inside. And the home baker's box with the insta-famous apple cider donut kit from Farms Today that's so popular it's almost always out of stock. Plus, this holiday season, every order from Crooked Coffee will support Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund to make sure every voice can be heard in the face of unprecedented voter suppression. There's a limited quantity, so head to crooked.com slash coffee to shop before we sell out. X-Ray Vision is brought to you by Z-Biotics. The holidays are a lot. A lot of food. A lot of drinks. A lot of awkward family moments. A lot of stuff you don't want to do, including the morning after having all those drinks. Ever skipped a workout because of drinks the night before? You know I have. If you're committed to your healthy routine this year, you need Z-Biotics. Nowadays when I drink alcohol, and boy do I, I don't bounce back the next day like I used to. So a lot of time... I'd be the only person in the group not drinking or I'd end up just skipping plans with friends altogether because I can't control my alcohol intake. That is, until I found Z-Biotics. We all have busy lives these days and can't afford to waste a day stuck on the couch because of a few drinks the night before. Z-Biotics is the answer we've all been waiting for. Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by a Ph.D. scientist to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut, where you need it most. Just remember to drink Z-Biotics before drinking alcohol. Drink responsibly and get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. Give Z-Biotics a try for yourself. Go to zbiotics.com slash x-ray to get 15% off your first order when you use x-ray at checkout. Z-Biotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantees. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Thanksgiving is coming. So order a pack of Z-Biotics so you and those joining you around the table can indulge a little this holiday and still feel thankful you did the next day. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash x-ray and use the code x-ray at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Z-Biotics for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to another chapter in the Omnibus where lore analysis and understanding come together this week, Afrofuturism and the Black Panther. The Black Panther and Wakanda are an early example of Afrofuturism, which is a, a term coined by cultural critic Mark Derry in his 1993 essay, Black to the Future, which explored the paucity of black creators in sci-fi. Filmmaker and scholar Yatasha L. Womack in her book, Afrofuturism, the World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture, defines the movement as, quote, 
both an artistic aesthetic and a framework for critical theory that, quote, combines elements of science fiction, historical fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy, Afrocentricity, and magic realism with non-Western beliefs. Some other examples of Afrofuturism that you uh, might be aware of are the works of Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience, Parliament Funkadelic's kind of like UFO aesthetic and lore, the works of Octavia Butler, uh, and the late rapper MF Doom. Wakanda is the most technologically advanced superpower on Earth in the MCU, uh, a utopia melding supercomputers, incredible weapons, spaceships, uh, with fictional African traditions, uh, the Orisha, the heart-shaped herb, warrior falls, and so on. At a time when racial caricaturing of non-white characters was commonplace, see any of Marvel Comics or any comics at all, DC Comics, anybody, as uh, 1960s depiction of Asian characters and, and any character of color, really. Uh, Kirby and Lee avoided such pitfalls with the creation of T'Challa. Without a doubt, uh, Loyola professor Adilifu Nama writes in his book, Super Black American Pop Culture and Black Superheroes, the Black Panther and Wakanda offered unprecedented and upbeat images of Africa and African people. When uh, Reed Richards, among of course, the most very brilliant minds in the Marvel Universe first account encounters Wakandan technology. Uh, he's blown away. Quote, he took a metal device from inside his toga, uh, Reed says in Fantastic Four number 52. But it's so small. Can he actually transmit a message halfway around the globe with that? Uh, as radical as the intersection of technology and blackness is, the presentation of Wakanda as a nation which has time and again successfully defended itself from European invasion and colonization. Wakanda compels respect from the world's great nations, uh, its superheroes, and its supervillains. The nation has no history of colonial trauma to transcend. Wakanda's existence as a free, self-sufficient geopolitical power is a powerful critique of colonialism and the economic exploitation of Africa. The introduction of Ulysses Claw sharpens that point. A Belgian mercenary, son of a Nazi war criminal, Claw, the Black Panther's nemesis, is obsessed with obtaining Wakanda on his vibranium. T'Challa's origin story, rising from the title of Black Panther after beating Batclaw's murderous assault on his nation, is, as Nama writes, quote, the idealized composite of third world black revolutionaries and the anti-colonialist movement of the 1950s that they represented. The first Black Panther film calls on numerous elements from T'Challa's comics canon, the most notable uh, being, for me, Panther's Rage and the Client. The former is a storyline, uh, which is an epic storyline written by Don McGregor with art by Rick Buckler, uh, Billy Graham, and Gil Kane, which played out in the pages of uh, Black Panther's solo book. Then embarrassingly titled Jungle Action from September 1973 to November 1975. Rosie, tell us more about uh, Bill Graham. Yeah, Panther's Rage is a really monumental book, not just because it's widely seen as one of the best arcs of Black Panther, but also uh, it was drawn predominantly by Billy Graham, who is arguably the first black creator who was hired by the big two. Um, the book also had a black uncredited assistant on it, uh, Arvel Jones. And Billy Graham had already done work at Marvel because he had inked the first ever issue of Luke Cage Hero for Hire in 1972 and continued to ink or pencil that book through its first 16 
issues. One of the things that's most memorable about Billy's art on Panther's Rage are these unbelievable title pages he would draw with these huge names written out of rock. And Billy has long been an undercredited part of Marvel history. So it's really wonderful to see people revisit Panther's Rage and learn about the impact that Billy and his art had on Black Panther and this landmark arc. Um, The Client uh, is an arc written by Christopher Priest with art by Mark Teixeira, not the baseball player. Uh, Part of a character-redefining run on the Black Panther solo title, which was first published in the late 90s and is just... Uh, tremendously influential, like unbelievably influential. Um, In Panther's Rage, T'Challa, back in Wakanda after many years in the States, is struggling to adapt to a nation that has kind of been, uh, is in the midst of kind of coming apart because of palace intrigue and he's trying to balance his love life and also his responsibilities as a a leader. Uh, And he faces his most dangerous nemesis, yet a Wakandan named Ndjadaka, who spent time in America, changed his name to Eric Killmonger. Uh, Panther's Rage was uh, groundbreaking comic storytelling. The story was set completely in Africa, in Wakanda, far from the urban settings in which most, you know, kind of mainstream Mm -hmm. media stories set in a a black context were told. Uh, And it was, quote, at a time when strident expressions of black cultural pride were cresting in the United States, writes Nama and Super Black. The story unfolds over 13 issues, which was this was not done back then. This was not really done in comics. The 13 issue story like arc didn't really happen back then when it was hard to find comics like you didn't know. Most people got them off the rack. There were not that many comic stores. And so to do a 13 issue arc was really it was an investment and it was. Uh, and it was it's cool that it happened, but it was really you're trusting people are going to be able to find these comics and follow the story. Um, it has been described as Marvel's first graphic novel. Uh, the Kree Skrull War, for instance, which was published in 1971-72, was told over eight issues in the pages of the Avengers. Uh, Panther's Rage features, with one exception, the villain uh, Venom, an all-black cast, a first for mainstream comics, in their first confrontation. Killmonger tosses the Black Panther over Warrior Falls, declaring your line of descent and you'll take nothing from me ever again. Goodbye, great and mighty king. You've returned to the land of your birth only to die here. Uh, T'Challa bounces back from this defeat much quicker than he does in the first Panther film. But this, you know, this defeat really shakes T'Challa to his core and in subsequent issues he faces various challenges to his authority. Uh, Christopher Priest, who in 1983 became the first black writer to be hired at the big two comic houses, Marvel and DC, began writing Black Panther in 1998. Uh, At this time, uh, this was a, a, a really tenuous time in comics writ large and in particularly at Marvel, which was just then emerging from bankruptcy after the kind of collectibles-wide bust of the early to mid-aughts that included comics, included Beanie Babies, included trading cards, et cetera. All those things just tanked. And the company at that time was just kind of willing to try shit, just throw anything at the wall and see if anything came of it. One of those things was a new line of edgier comics branded as Marvel Knights, 
K-N-I-G-H-T-S. Editors Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti uh, approached Priest about Black Panther. Uh, Christopher was initially uh, hesitant to do it, but he accepted. Uh, and it was a transformational run, breathing new energy into the character and lore. Quote, he had the classic run on Black Panther, period. And that's going to be true for a long time. Ta-Nakisi Coates, Black Panther uh, writer and now Superman writer, told Vulture's Abraham Raisman in 2018. Priest brought a uh, a real kingly weight to T'Challa's character. Uh, uh, contrast this with Panther's Rage, where uh, T'Challa was more unsure of his leadership and, and how to wield it. Uh, uh, in Priest telling, T'Challa was a leader was a king, was a ruler, and exuded that confidence. Uh, in the client, he just commands total respect. And while Priest did not create the Black Panther, it's it's really, in many ways, his version of the character that you see in the MCU. Priest and artist Mark Teixeira tell the tale in a, a kind of uh, jumbled, fractured style that feels, you know, very Quentin Tarantino-esque, very of the time period of the 90s. Uh, the, the, it's about the Tomorrow Fund, which is a kind of project to create affordable housing um, in kind of downtrodden urban areas. It's been revealed as a cover for a money laundering operation for drug money. Um a young girl who appears in the fund's ad with T'Challa is murdered, and uh, despite tensions arising for war refugees sheltering Wakanda, uh, the king travels to the U.S. to try and figure out, like, okay, what's going on with this t uh, tomorrow fund? And to, to you know, like, uh, to bring those responsible to justice. He's accompanied by his personal bodyguards, Nakia and Okoye, members of the elite all-female fighting force known as the Dora Milaje. Uh, Quote, the concept of the Dora Milaje, Wakandan for adored ones, evolved out of the brilliant work of Panther scribe Don McGregor, who theorized Wakanda was actually made up of a great many indigenous tribes and that not all the tribes liked each other, Priest writes on his website, digitalpriest.com. Quote, Joe and Jimmy just thought it'd be cool to have Panther tra travel with a pair of six foot tall, gorgeous women, and I certainly agreed. <laughs> But the order of the Dora Milaje, a kind of nun-wife-in-training deal, gave us a foot in both the worlds the Panthers struggled to maintain peace between the modern and the tribal, end quote. The story is told mainly through the recollections of one colonizer, <laughs> Everett Ross, CIA agent Everett Ross, a kind of, uh, in the comics, a mid-level State Department bureaucrat who's ostensibly assigned to T'Challa as his kind of like point of contact with the U.S. government, um, but whose actual job is to spy on him. Uh, Priest's inspiration for Ross was, hilariously, Chandler Bing from Friends and Alex P. Keaton from the 1980s uh, uh, sitcom uh, Family Ties. The inclusion of Ross as a narrator was this really subversive uh, moment Quote, with Ross in place, the book began to take shape, Priest writes on digitalpriest.com. Quote continues, Ross became the key to making the book work. He was the voice of the average Marvel reader who in no doubt wondered why Marvel was bothering with another Panther series. Ross's monologues began to steal the show, offsetting the mysterious night creature, the man of few words, who Ross was attached to. The monologues were often outrageous with Ross interpreting the Marvel universe through his every man's eyes rather than through the eyes of someone who's been reading comics all their life. It was a new voice, one seemingly hostile towards the Marvel universe and by extension its fans, but actually the 
intent is to be a social observer and a deconstructionist, end quote. And as Namo notes in Super Black, quote, the Ross figure provides the reader with the choice of identifying with either the white figure or the black superhero or both of them, but never exclusively with the black protagonist. In this sense, Ross's character is a nifty technique for addressing whether or not white readers will identify with a black superhero, namely T'Challa. By the mid-2000s, Priest had burned out at Marvel, frustrated uh, by a lack of opportunities to write A-list characters. Quote, I've mentioned this a lot in interviews, Priest told uh, CBR.com in 2020. But long story short, somehow bizarrely, as a result of my writing Black Panther, a comic book about the cultural awakening of a white man named Ross, I stopped being a writer and somehow became a black writer, offered only writing assignments for characters of color, end quote. Priest returned to comics in 2016 when DC offered him the writing duties on Deathstroke as part of the company's rebirth launch. That title ended in 2019, and uh, as early as 2021, Priest was working on uh, the relaunch of Vampirella for Dynamite Comics. Okay, and this is actually incredible because Billy Graham's first known credited work was actually on a Vampirella comic uh, illustrating Don Glut in Vampirella. I think it was number one in 1969, and he would go on to actually uh, pencil nearly like a dozen stories and and ink uh, Vampirella stories. So it's kind of amazing that there's also that connection between what Priest is doing now and then where Billy found a home at the beginning of his career. Up next, a conversation with Ironheart writer Eve L. Ewing. X-Ray Vision is brought to you by Indeed. Ambitious hiring goals for the last quarter of 2022? With a powerful hiring partner, big goals are no big deal. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't do this. Spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills like a dummy when all you need to do is go to Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessment, and virtual interviews. Do you hate waiting? God, who doesn't? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment, the very instant. They sponsor a job. Hate working hard? That too. Indeed does the hard work for you. Sponsor a job and boom, bap, zap. Instant Match shows you candidates whose resume on Indeed fit your job description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. With Indeed, you can select for the skills that matter most to you. Customize your job post with a selection of over 100 Indeed assessments, tests, and find the candidates with the right skills fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at Indeed.com slash x-ray. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash x-ray. Indeed.com slash x-ray. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Karayuma, the sustainable sneaker worn by skaters and surfers. They're reimagining classic sneakers with you and the planet in mind. Cozy season. It's happening, folks. It's getting darker earlier. The weather is turning frigid. And Karayuma is making cool, seriously comfortable shoes that you need right now. Finally back in stock after a 77,000 wait list, their bestseller, 
comes in organic cotton canvas or ultra soft, responsibly sourced suede. What is that seller? Should it be in the first sentence? Should it be name checked in the first sentence so we know what it is? Don't worry about it. Low tops are a given, but the Oka family includes a padded high top silhouette for a cozier fit. Is that the best seller? We think so, using context clues. Cariuma also gave us a little insight into their top selling colors this season, which I love to get this kind of goss from Cariuma. Check out their rose gray and off-white canvas styles, or treat yourself to a pair of navy or caramel suede. The classic look means you only need one pair, but try them on and you might wonder, do I need to grow more feet? It's no secret the way people love the Oka with over 25,000 five-star reviews, but they have already won over celebrity fans and gained coverage in Vogue, Rolling Stone, GQ, and more. But the biggest difference between these sneakers and other sneakers beyond, like I'm not talking about the premium materials or the handcrafted quality. I'm talking Oka's serious comfort. And we all know comfort comes first. I've been saying that for years. Whether you're running to catch the train or an early morning swell, you want to be cozy doing it because it's more than just our comfort and how cool we look. It's also about the planet that we all live in and share together. For every pair of sneakers sold, Cariuma's team, get this, plants two trees in the Brazilian rainforest. Where in the Brazilian rainforest? Don't worry about it. Somewhere in there are going to be two more trees every time you buy a pair of shoes. You're helping the planet. Carry me ships fast and free. In addition to that, in the USA, in addition to worldwide shipping and 60-day extended returns free of charge, they deliver right to your front door, not any other door, using a single-box recycled package because they love the planet. And for a limited time, X-Ray Vision listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your pair of Cariuma sneakers. Go to C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash X-Ray to get 15% off. That's C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash X-Ray for 15% off. Oh, only for a limited time. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we explore a topic in more detail with the help of expert guests. Uh, this week, we're absolutely honored to have Evel Ewing, author, academic, poet, writer of Marvel's Ironheart series, uh, which reinvented Riri, and who, of course, makes her MCU debut in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Eve, welcome to X-Ray Vision. Oh, thanks for having me. I am a super fan of the podcast, as y'all know. So this is very <laughs> exciting for me. It's a big career moment for me. Ah, it's a big career moment for <laughs> us. <Yes. laughs> to have you on the show. Oh, it's something just so wonderful to talk to people who make comics, who love this stuff like we do. So first of all, like, what was your comic book origin story? What made you fall in love with comics? Yeah, well, my comic book origin story is a little unique, I think, in that um, I would not have been born without comics. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, my dad in the 80s was making and self-publishing uh, like 
comic books that are basically like zines. Um, oh, wow. And it's so cool. How did I? Yeah, it's, it's very cool. Um, I have tracked down some of these and he's pretty mortified at them now, but <laughs> I think they're cool. And um, and in the 80s, my parents were both waiting at a Greyhound bus station in Chicago to head back to their respective hometowns for the holidays. And my dad was there selling these comic books for a dollar. Um, oh, my God. And my mom bought one. And her and her friends had been like pre-gaming the Greyhound. So they were like a little tipsy, (laughs) (laughs) you know, as one does. Um, And she had never ridden the bus by herself before. And so they were getting on the same bus and her friends kind of like drunkenly said to my dad, like, you know, we have your comic book. And if something happens to our friend, like, we'll find you, you know, you're responsible (laughs) for her Uh, because there was no Internet. And so he had like his, you know, his mailing address and his phone number on on this thing um and so so that's how my parents met wow. um, oh wow and so that, it's like a very literal origin story and then um my first comics uh as a kid I feel now like confident enough in myself to say this that I was a big Archie comics fan I think yes for yeah, many for great. many years I you yeah. know didn't feel confident uh sharing that but I started reading Archie when I was in kindergarten um mm-hmm. and that was kind of my first you know Archie they would like often reprint old comic, like old strips in the same issue with new ones. And so that was also my introduction as a kid to the idea of like recurring characters and that different people can like have different takes on things and like letters to the editor and all these sorts of things. And then um, in middle school, Chicago at the time when I was growing up, um, you know, like every week in our local alt weekly, I would be reading like Linda Berry and Ivan Brunetti Mm -hmm. and Chris Ware Mm -hmm. Um, so it was like a really great time for comics and cartooning. And then in high school, I started getting more into superhero comics. Um, I'll shout out like Chicago comics and Quimby's, which is a place that has an amazing zine collection. You know, I was reading like superhero stuff, but also like Jonan Vasquez and, you know, other. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Uh, baby, Johnny the homicidal maniac. Yeah. If you were our age, that was the, that was the call. It was, that was the thing. And, you know, it was also like a great time for animation. Um, You know, like Samurai Jack came out when I was 15. Um, I promise I'll wrap up this long story soon. No, no, no. This is why you're here. This is why you love it. Well, you know, since we're in, like, in my first, when I was in high school, I signed up to take this history of animation class at the University of Chicago, where I now teach. And um, I learned about, like, Jan Schwankmeyer and, like, Mm. Windsor McKay. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so, like, I would say animation and comics and cartooning were all very much of a piece for me. And then the last thing in this epic origin story is that when I was 15 (laughs) or 16, um... The, at the Chicago Humanities Festival, uh, Neil Gaiman was interviewing Will Eisner, uh, and and my dad took me to see that interview, uh, and so that was pretty amazing. Especially because later on, uh, and you know, if we talk about like the not so fun part of comics later, sure. uh, I had the very surreal experience of Neil Gaiman like defending me on the internet from, <laughs> from comics people. So that was that was pretty cool. I was like, well, you're really important to me. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I think that, like, when I was in high school, I never... People always say, like, did you think that you would write comics? And I absolutely didn't because mm-hmm. I yeah. I never yeah. I never saw anybody who looked like me doing mm-hmm. it. And, and I think that there are many people in this world who have the imagination to kind of insert themselves into narratives where they haven't mm-hmm. been. And I just didn't have that level of imagination. So I was like, oh, you know, this is something I'm always going to love, but I'll never get a chance to do. Um, but I did 
as I started taking myself pretty seriously as a writer across lots of genres, you know, I was reading a lot of Ivan Brunetti and Scott McCloud and stuff like that because I also, and I still, you know, to students and all kinds of people who just want to talk about like how to be a great writer. Um, I tell them like, read understanding comics, read mm-hmm. cartoon yeah. and philosophy and practice. Right. Because I think that they have a lot to teach us just about like narrative in general and storytelling in general. Um, so yeah, I think that before I even started writing comics, a lot of my other writing was very informed by that tradition. Uh, just from that answer, uh, I think people who maybe are not familiar with your work or with you are are getting the picture of how incredibly uh, varied and well-rounded you are. If, you know, if that's the right oh, thank you. <laughs> term for I, the I, for the <laughs> amount of stuff that you, that you know about and that your uh, intellect touches. And I, I I wonder as so as you know, as an assistant professor, as... Oh, a, I'm associate so, now. I'm tenured. Oh, hey! Yeah. Hey, tenured. congrats! It's great. As officially Thanks, a professor. I, yeah, I can't be fired. I cannot I be fired. I love it. <laughs> you love to hear it. Pretty and, great and, scam. You know, as an academic, as a sociologist, as an author, as a poet, how do, um, uh, how do all those things inform your work, uh, you know, at any uh, point in this range of, of things that you're interested in? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I thought you were going to pivot to the whole rest of the interview being about Jan Schwankmeier and like check animation. I, I, I kind of am <laughs> trying to get there. The which is like, Come on, guys. Yeah, let's like, talk I, about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, you know, I think that at the end of the day, I just want to tell stories. I want to tell good yeah. stories. And I think that um, not to get like too heady or whatever, but, you know, a lot of the. Please get uh, heady. Intell- okay, cool, cool. <laughs> Please get heady. You know, get heady, a baby. A lot of intellectuals that are most important to me, and particularly in the Black intellectual tradition, you know, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, people like Zora Neale Hurston mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. always written all kinds of things, right? Like mm-hmm. across genre. And I think that, I think that a lot of times folks don't really want to give themselves permission to do that. But yeah. for me, I try to approach any story or anything I want to write about and talk about and think like, what is the medium that is best going to serve what it is I'm trying to say and do? And also, I think I'm really comfortable um, being a learner. I'm really, I used to teach middle school, and um, that's a great way to learn humility. <laughs> you know, it's a great way to learn, uh, you know, like comfort with being like, okay, what can I do better today than I did yesterday? Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I think if anything, I'm, I'm really comfortable doing that. And so I think that, um, you know, all this stuff that I write, and and try to make uh, you know I've I've co-written a play and I write poetry and I do comics and working on some TV stuff and I think what unites all those things is just like what's the best possible story that we can tell yeah. what are the, mm-hmm. those fundamentals of really good storytelling um, you know and how do we how do we get there um, and I also think like I try to do something in comics that I think is uh, has always been part of the tradition right which is like using comics as a space to bring interesting questions about the world we live in uh, to readers in a very, like, pop culture, lowbrow way, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, And I think that that's also, like, the kind of, like, pulpy, cheap, like, crappy, low-culture aspect of comics is something that I also really love Mm -hmm. and embrace. Um, And, you know, I I have a graphic novel coming out this coming next year in March, but prior to that, I'd never written a graphic novel. And, you know, like, a lot of my colleagues and stuff who don't know anything about comics would be like, oh, congrats on your uh, graphic novel, right? Because they basically saw graphic novels like a polite word for, like, (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. It's the the, (laughs) comics is the dirty word and graphic novels the academic, you know? 
Yeah. And that people thought that they were like insulting me and they had to use this kind of like euphemism. And I'm, I'm super into that. I'm super into like pulpy, cheap garbage stories written on like, you know, paper, literally stapled together, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like so um, sold on paper that is like not very good. Um, I'm totally into <laughs> that. And I think it puts comics alongside jazz, alongside hip hop mm-hmm. as, you know, kind of like a great uh, subterranean art form. Absolutely. And I think like one of the things that's so powerful is the the certain level of freedom you get from writing something that's like disposable or seen as disposable for a really long time. And how does it feel like, so say like poetry collection, like Electric Arches, which definitely deals with a lot of the same themes and interests, the kind of cosmic mixed with the mundane. What kind of freedom do you get when you take those themes and you take them out of a a poetry space, a very structured space, and then you put them onto the page in a comic book. How different is that for you? And and how much fun do you get to have in that in that world of panels and oh, it's so bubbles? fun. You know, I see actually, I see in like if I were to categorize the work that I do, I see kind of poetry and comics as being of a piece. Mm-hmm. In that, I think both of them are places where I feel a lot of permission to just do wild stuff and just say whatever <laughs> <laughs> you know and do whatever. But I think the difference about comics is that like. Um, you know, it's such a collaborative medium. And so mm. for me, you know, the the poetry in my first book, Electric Arches, which you're so kind to mention, is is very much about um, imagination, is very much about, you know, Afrofuturism and exploration and time travel and like weird space stuff. Um, but to bring in the visual element of that is just so magical to me. Mm-hmm. And I feel... Um, you know, I've gotten to work with a, a lot of different artists at this point, um, and I feel uh, like really grateful for all of them, and and really grateful for the process. And I think that for folks who have never been on the creator side of comics, just really wrapping your mind around how many people go into making one thing, I think yeah. is often something that surprises a lot of people. So you know, you pick up a comic book, that's at least one editor, right? At, at least. least one writer, somebody doing pencils, somebody maybe doing layout, somebody doing ink, somebody doing colors, somebody doing lettering, right? And I really love working with all those folks. Um, and in particular, with Ironheart um, being my first kind of like big two comics experience, I got really lucky working with with Luciano Vecchio mm-hmm. for most of the run. Also, shout out to Kevin Lebronda who started out the run, but most of the issues are, are drawn by Luciano, um, who's just like an amazing, wonderful person. Um, and so that aspect of it is, is really different than poetry or other forms yeah. of writing mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm trying to take stuff from my brain and say it on paper. Um, and then turning it over with a lot of trust and a lot of gratitude to really brilliant people who are going to bring it to life in a different way. Um, and so that's something that I that I really appreciate. And one of the, the biggest things that I try to tell, you know, folks who are, again, like as I'm teaching or talking to folks about coming into this space is like um, an artist on a comic book is not an illustrator. Their job mm-hmm. is not right. to... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm compliment or like make pretty what you're doing right like they are doing 50 percent or more of the work (laughs) through their craft they're a translator they translate your script into the comic book you know yeah and they're and like visual art is what makes comics what they are right and so I think it's also been really amazing for me um to live into some of my principles as a writer about like parsimony and less is more and show don't tell and all that Mm -hmm, type of stuff mm -hmm. Um, becomes very literal in the comic space in a way that it isn't in like nonfiction or poetry or other things. Uh, I wonder if you could take us into that the the kind of process that that um, you uncovered through working on Ironheart um, because you know one of the things that uh, I think 
Rosie and I try to do with this pod is like point away for people like Rosie and myself who fell in love with comics, fell in love with serialized storytelling to try and uh, if they ever wanted to do that, find the creative outlet for themselves to find the kind of like nuts and bolts things that they could, you know, bring into their process that could help them get there. So what what was that like? What what is the what's the storytelling process, the collaborative process like on 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 these issues? How do you how do you bring these stories to life? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the first thing you have to get over is like immense fear. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like, I mean, that's the biggest uh, the biggest and, obstacle for any for any person oh, yeah. who wants any to be writer, creative. Yeah. yeah. I think that um, you know, I something I like I've I've published a lot of stuff. I've written a lot of stuff and to this day, when I sit down to write a new thing, you know, I have that moment of terror of like, yeah. I think I'm going to throw up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, mm-hmm. I, you know, like I'm like, I, I might die. Like I might <laughs> die from writing. Is today the day that writing finally gets me, you know? Um, and so I think the biggest thing is like learning to push through that. Um, Alexander Chi, who's a, an essayist and novelist, yep. um, mm-hmm. has this thing that he said that I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but people should look it up from his book, which is called um, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, um, which the title is misleading because it's not about that. <laughs> um, it's just like a collection of essays, many of which are about writing. Um, but one of the things he says is like the difference between people who write and people who don't is being able to stand it. Um, and so I think the biggest thing is like learning to trust yourself and to work through some of those feelings of discomfort. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I studied up a lot. I seek feedback a lot. I think that who I am now, I'm, I'm working on what my next project is going to be for, for Marvel, which I really wish I could tell you because it's super exciting. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's super great. Um, but I'm working on that now. And I, I've had a lot of opportunities to reflect on like who I am now as a comics writer versus who I was in 2018, mm-hmm. um, trying to start Ironheart. And I, I think that the, the biggest thing that I had on my side was, um, reading a lot, studying a lot, you know, some of those, those books that we just talked about, you know, a lot of certainly everything Scott McCloud wrote about comics, um, you know, Will Eisner's books, mm-hmm. um, Greg Pak has a really great book called, um, making comics like the pros or something like that. Um, and he's, he's amazing, but also like reaching out for help, you know? And so yeah. I had folks give me a lot of feedback on things, um, and kind of push, push me forward. Um, and then even with that, understanding that the first thing you write, like, you know, I look back at my, my first issue of Ironheart and I'm like, you know, oh my God, there's so many things that I would just <laughs> never do, you know? And, and that's the truth for every comics writer I've mm-hmm. ever spoken to. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yeah. it's like nauseating to look back at where you started, but you have to be willing to push through that. You know, yeah. you have to be willing to, to kind of get over that. And I think for anybody who wants to write in any genre, I, I think about this. I'm really into baking and I'm really into metaphors. So, <laughs> you, allow me, you know, one of my favorite ways of thinking about this is like, if I told you, if you're like, you know, I want to make a cake, like I've seen cake, I've eaten cake, yeah. I'm really into it. It's tasty. It's delicious. It's beautiful. And you, you know, you took a bowl and you put like eggs and flour and, and milk and cocoa powder into a bowl and you stirred it up and you're like, this doesn't look like cake at all. Like this is disgusting. You know, what is this? And you throw it in the garbage, like you you don't go, th- that's, you didn't finish. You mm-hmm. didn't finish the process. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of folks, they see the writing that they admire the most and they see the finished product of that. And they don't realize exactly how much like utter garbage sauce went into going from a first draft to a final product. Um, and like, you got to put the cake in the, in the, yeah. pan, put, put the batter in the oven and put the, or, you know, put the batter in the pan and put the pan in the oven. And, um, and I think that that's, that's the, the secret, you know, mm-hmm. um, I was, uh, 
Ta-Nehisi Coates, I'm very grateful to count him as a, a close close friend and, and mentor. And I watched him be interviewed several years ago. Um, and somebody asked him about the case for reparations, um, which for those who only know him from yes. comics, <laughs> if you only know him for his runs on, on Cap and Black Panther, um, he, you know, wrote this really important piece of nonfiction yeah. prose. Um, and, you know, somebody said, oh, I wish I could have written that. I could never have written that. He said, oh, it was easy. You know, all I did was I wrote it badly five times. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, right. exactly. That's all you have to do. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that's it. So, you know, unfortunately, that's true about so many things like, you yeah. know, working out, <laughs> exercise, like relationships, like mm-hmm. all these things about life that we kind of wish were just easy. Unfortunately, you just have to do the thing. No, uh, I love that. It sucks. Because <laughs> that's what we always that when people we've done like mailbox, mailbag episodes and stuff and people will say like, oh, how do you get into writing comics? How do you start? Yeah. writing and truth is you just got to make them you got to do like know, what your dad it's did horrible you, you got to make yeah. a zine you got to write a script you got to write a pilot and you kind of touched on this but you know throughout that that's your writing process that's how you get it done and you mentioned this but like what was it like the first time that you start and still now because I know it's like the best feeling but what was it like when you started to get the art back and you started to see oh my gosh <laughs> yeah your story and really being brought to life in this form that you'd loved since you were a kid and suddenly you're part of that process how, how did that feel oh it's mind-blowing I never get over it I mean yeah getting getting art back is like the the great Christmas I mean mm-hmm, it's yeah. like Christmas and your birthday you know rolled into one and I think that um that's also part of why it's challenging to start because when you mm-hmm. when you write your first comic script, if you're doing your own art, that's dope. And actually, secret since we're doing all kinds of secret confessionals of things yeah. I wouldn't normally say in interviews, um, you know, I actually in the early like 2011, 2012, I was like, oh, I'll probably just like self-publish a lot of comics. Mm-hmm. So I was I was drawing, I was writing and drawing. Wow. Um, and you know, and like. And that, I mean, for those who who draw or do visual art, it's the same thing, right? Like every time you sit down to put a pencil to paper, you learn something new at the yeah. limits of your own ability, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're like, oh man, people have wrists. Like, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> How do you... What's a car? I've what, never yeah, seen yeah, this what's before. That? Right, what's you sit that? down to drive yeah. a car and you're like, I've never seen a car before in my entire life. <laughs> a horse? Doesn't Offset. exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a dog? Yeah. Uh, maybe what, maybe no that? animals in this... No crowds. Nobody's ever seen another person it's just one perspective (laughs) maybe i'll just look at everything straight on (laughs) you know and and there's honestly that's a kind of a cool you know another comic strip that i loved growing up was life and hell by matt graining right where it's like Mm -hmm, literally every single so you know i I wrote this this uh this strip called pretend interviews which was a comic of a a cartoon strip a cartoon of a radio show a, (laughs) a fictional radio show of me interviewing dead people um, and I did it life and hell style where every single panel was exactly the same as just yeah. like me sitting copy at a Copy and paste panel. You know? <laughs> just literally copy and paste. So anyway, unless you're doing your own art, and even if you are, the, part of the challenge of writing your first script is um, recognizing that kind of translational work that Rosie was talking about, which is like, right. how do I say this in mm-hmm. a way that somebody else is going to be able to draw it in, in a way that's compelling? You know, how do I do that succinctly? How do, how do I give them enough and not too much? And the first time you're writing a script and you haven't seen how it turns to art, 
uh, that's hard to do, right? And yeah. so it ceases to be kind of an intellectual exercise. I was I was helping a friend of mine who's who's writing his first comic script, and he sent it to me. And it, you know, I sent him a gentle reminder that I also had to receive, uh, which is that in comics, people can only do one thing at a time. Yes, right. So like, you can't yeah. have somebody walking <laughs> through a door no. into another room yeah. and then they right. grab something. Yeah. Yeah. Rosie walked in and picked up her mug of tea yeah. and high five Jason. You yeah, know, while that's a whole page. Winking. Like yeah. that's a whole page, right? Like yeah. so, you have to decide. And that's different. I think also a lot of folks who yeah. are familiar with like screenwriting or TV, mm-hmm. TV people move. <laughs> like yeah. in TV, human beings can move around in three dimensions. And so so that's kind of like to me, honestly, what I still really relish at a craft level. It's like, yeah. what is the what is the gestalt? What is the essence mm-hmm. of what like this this rosy moment, right? Mm-hmm. Is it most important that she sips her tea? Is it most important that she pets the cat? Is it most mm-hmm. like what am I actually trying to get across? Um, and I, I kind of love that. Like, I yeah. love yeah. thinking about how you reduce moments of immense um, emotion and human interaction to, like, a single thing. I'm also really a big fan of, um, like, it's pretty boring when people are just talking to each other, <laughs> uh, like, standing there talking. And so I'm also a big fan of the subtextual visual like sub story that Mm -hmm. that I script out, but that doesn't involve dialogue. Right. And so, um, you know, like there's this in issue seven, issue seven of Ironheart, um, uh, Nadia Van Dyne, the wasp comes to visit Mm -hmm. Riri in her lab and she's Riri showing her around. Um, and the subtext, so like as she's showing her around the lab, to me, this is an opportunity to show a lot of things about Riri. So one of the things she, like a recurring thing in Ironheart is that every time Riri opens a fridge, it's only full of orange pop. Um, <laughs> and so like she only, that's all she drinks. Um, and that's like a, that's a character moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the things, the ways that people interact with each other non-verbally, the things that you see on somebody's desk, the way that they dress, right? Like all of those are opportunities to build a character as well. And I love scripting that type of stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of the backdrop so that like, because, you know, I do want to write like emotionally laden work. And so yeah. if people are sitting and having a deep discussion, like what are the other things that they can be doing? You know, in, in Rosie's, um, you know, uh, comic, the, 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 food the food preparation scene right yeah, yeah. Like the, yeah. the Miyazaki nod of like exactly. you know, somebody making food in the background while they're having a conversation I love that type of thing yeah it's really I, fun. for me I, I think one of the biggest uh, lessons I need to learn in my own writing was my own tendency to uh love my characters and want to protect them too much you know you always hear mm-hmm. oh love all mm-hmm. your characters even the even the bad even the villains you know you have to empathize with you and so my the way that that manifested in my own work was that I don't want anything to happen to them. I want them to just be protected. Just slice of life. They're they just, just want to like, be yeah, chilling. Yeah, enjoying life. Out, you know, and, and what, what, you know, how does that translate? It translates to nothing happens. It's boring. Were there any moments like that uh, for you where you're like, oh, God, I, I have to I have to be mean to this creation that I love a little bit. I, I have to be willing to be mean to them. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. So first of all, my dream in life is to have the cachet as a creator to produce work in which truly nothing happens. The dream. That's the <laughs> yeah, ultimate yeah, dream. The wonderful like, dream. I aspire, yeah. You yeah. know, I'm a big, I'm a Miyazaki stan. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, all absolutely. Of us are. And so like, 
you know, I love Miyazaki films in which, like, truly not a lot yeah. happens. Yeah. You know, there's, Old there's, vibes. The, there's, there's, the, there's the polar opposite, which is the Miyazaki film in which, like, 700 things happen that you don't yeah. really understand. <laughs> yeah. you, know, like, um, you know, I've seen Princess Mononoke, like, you know, infinite yeah. times. I think the last time I saw it, I was like, cool, I think I'm up to a strong 75% of understanding what is going <laughs> on. <laughs> but the opposite of that is where it's just like, yeah, you know, like, you like Kiki, she worked at a bakery, and then yeah. like there was a ra- you know, like very minimal content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I aspire, I aspire. Um, but until I get to that point, I think, um, you know, I got in a, a one of the few times I've had like a, a minor respectful disagreement with somebody on the creative side at, at Marvel Comics was um, that this person who was not an editor, uh, who was a you know, kind of higher up person, uh, really wanting me to kill some characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was kind of like, what are the other ways that uh, we can have stakes, right? Mm. And so it's true. You can't just have nothing happening. But I think that some of our assumptions about what constitutes stakes are mm-hmm. sometimes wrong, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And so the question is like, what are the, you know, to, to quote She-Hulk, like, those aren't my stakes, right? Like, yeah, what, are yeah. the, what are the stakes that matter for that character? Mm. And I think for somebody, you know, for somebody like Riri, um, just, you know, since we're talking about her, um, the stakes of like getting into a fight are not always the highest stakes, right? For her, the the journey that I wanted to take her on in that solo title is really like very emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like being wrong, uh, exploring your own inner foolishness that you haven't really dealt <laughs> with, uh, being nice to other people, listening to other people, taking advice, asking mm-hmm. for help, right? Like those things are also really big moments for some characters. And so the question is, how do you take the audience or the reader on a journey where they're bought in? They're bought yeah. in on yeah. that, you know? Yeah. I don't know if you guys watched The Bear. Did you watch The Bear? Yes. yes. Yeah. Fans Come of the on. Okay. Yeah. I'm a huge, huge fan of it's The Bear. Like it's like 10 out of 10 incredible. I spent a lot of my time before I moved to America working in bars and restaurants. So it was like, I was like, oh, it this really is the captured, representation I wanted. Was like, oh, it's, it's so shit to work in a restaurant. It captured that. It captured that frenetic... There's that an emergency. There's another like, an emergency. Now right, there's another right. emergency and people right. need to get fed also. And it's a little, I think it's a little triggering for people who've worked in the restaurant yeah, industry. Yeah, sure. You know, it's like, sure. but, but you know, one of my favorite, so folks should watch, I think it's just an amazingly written piece of media. I also think it's one of the best things to take place in Chicago, like ever written. Mm-hmm. It's really good. But, uh, you know, I think one of my favorite scenes is like uh, this scene of these two characters, Sydney and Marcus at the end, right? Yeah. Uh, towards yeah. the end of the, the first season. This is not like a major spoiler, but um you know, Sydney has basically just like done the George Costanza equivalent of like sitting in the slushy machine. Like, like when you have an epic quit, like an epic quitting, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, when you're like, I quit on this in this like amazing, like burn every bridge way. And this tension of like, is she going to go back? Like, can she go back to the yeah. restaurant? Right. And to me, when I think about that show, which is so wildly frenetic and stressful, like to me, that's one of the highest stakes moments mm-hmm. of, of the season is because all of us have felt that thing where like, we we went out with a bang and then we look yeah. back and we're like, yo, I was kind of wrong. Like <laughs> I was, ooh, like I honestly was like maybe really wrong and yeah. really, and like, am I going to go back and tell people like, yo, I was wrong mm-hmm. and try to salvage that? That's so cringy. It's like so yeah. uncomfortable to even talk about. Um, so yeah, I think that the question of like, 
you know, kill your darlings. Like sometimes that's that's not literally murdering them. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, Saladin Ahmed said this to me. He was like, at this point, you know, people dying in comics is also like not that high. I was going to say that. Right, yeah, the yeah, irony come is like everybody <laughs> comes back. back. So yeah, the bigger you know. challenge is to find stakes. That yeah. feel you know, that's real. What, that's what George R. R. Martin is like. Comics stop being good when people stop being permanently yeah. dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's still like he's feared of Uncle Ben coming back. That will be the yeah, true he's like, moment. Just kill people and make them dead. He's like, yeah. just kill them and let them be dead. Come on, bro. Come on, bro. I mean, that's the ultimate comic book uh, conundrum. So I, I think that's quite. I, yeah, quite ironic that that was a a note. You know, the idea that you had to kill people for it to be real. I'm like, oh, they'll yeah. be back. They'll be back right, in the next day, They'll be yeah. back. <laughs> right, right. And then, kind of like, what was it like for you to go from this space of seeing, getting to know Riri as a writer, but also as a comic book fan and in this art space, to then. You know, this is one of the quickest, if not the quickest, transitions of being introduced in 2016, getting a solo series, 2018, being in the MCU. It's a six-year period. Yeah, 2022. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Like, it's, that's it's one amazing. of the quickest. So how does it feel then to not just be creating her story and seeing it on the page, but to then go to the premiere to see it on oh. screen and to see Dominique <laughs> Thorne just absolutely smash it? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, is this a spoiler? This is this a spoiler-friendly situation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, we we, we'll okay, put cool, a spoiler cool. note. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, on a practical level, <laughs> I've spent the last four years of my life perfecting the uh, who is Ironheart spiel for that I have to give to people, uh, which now has morphed into the who is Monica Rambeau spiel. Now that I'm <laughs> yeah, baby. Doing the Lord's uh, work. Yeah. Doing the Lord's work. Uh, and, you know, just like to tell people, you know, tell people in 30 seconds before their eyes glaze over, you know, like, oh, this is, this is a character, Brian Michael Bendis, uh, and Miles Morales. You probably, yeah. you know, who right? Yeah. Okay, so, Brian, it's that guy. Okay, so Iron Man, you know who that is. Uh, and the b- b- protege, but then not the same. And at that point, the person is like walked away. You know? um, <laughs> and so what I'm really excited about is just like being able to say Ironheart to people and then being like, cool, I know who that is. Uh, without like this long drawn out explanation. Um, also, usually at the end of that explanation, somebody turns to their friend and they're like, yeah, this is Eve. She wrote Iron Man in the movies. I'm like, no, that's, that's not, not, that's not how it happened. Um, and comics literacy is still like yes. very low yes. in our yeah. society. So yeah. that also keeps me humble. One of my best friends, when I, when I started writing Ironheart, she said to me, this is a person, brilliant person, amazing. She has a PhD, you know, like amazing person, well-read. She's like, She's like, I I was unaware that they were still making new superheroes. Yes, <laughs> she's like, yes, 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 yes. She's real like, thing. she's like, you know, I thought like there's Batman, there's Spider-Man. Yeah. And I thought, like, you know, they're done. Like she thought it was like a canonical, like yeah, this done. is who we have. Comic they're books they're over and we're just uh, you know, I'm like, first, you know, we have new Pokemon. Like there's like things don't <laughs> anything that has IP that's not like, you know, we just have the so so. Honestly, like, uh, just the, I love this character so much, and she's very real to me in a probably weird way. Um, And so, yeah, like, just to know that she's going to be visible to so many other people is is really exciting and, frankly, completely unreal for me. And then, honestly, being at the premiere, like, first of all, it was my first Hollywood premiere, um, and so it was just, like, surreal in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, Rihanna sat two rows behind us. Ah! And, oh, my God! Uh, wow. <laughs> like, like directly behind those so that I could not see her unless I turned my entire body. Um, and throughout the whole time, my husband was like, 
Rihanna's eating popcorn. Like he was like, what? <laughs> like, he's like giving like, you the commentary. Yeah. Rihanna's, like all of Rihanna's activities to me, I was like, okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought I, I'm a big crier and I thought I was going to cry a lot when mm. she first appeared on screen. And instead I was like, so filled with the most unspeakable joy that oh, I can't yeah. even describe to you. I was so happy. Um, and I sat behind, uh, right behind Reginald Hudlin, um, oh, wow. who, you know, who, for folks who don't know, is both a Hollywood, like, black film icon who made, like, House Party and Boomerang, but also had a, a pretty good run on Black Panther in the Comic 2000s, like, comics too. writer. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and when Riri first appeared on screen, he turned around uh, and, and grabbed my hand, and he goes, oh. that's, he's like, that's what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> That was very cool. <laughs> and, and and Bendis was there in the same row. And the other thing I'll, I'll share is that, like, um, I think this is okay to say, like, he he was sitting in front and, like, a little to the left of me. And and before the—and we'd actually never met in person before. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. And so, you know, I went over and I introduced myself to him. And he, he shook my hand and he said, um, you're the reason we're all here. Um, it's true. And wow. that was, like, very— I think very, just very moving and very generous. Um, and, you know, I think for him to be able to say that, uh, yeah, it was, just, it was, it was really kind. Um, and I think that part of the fun and wild thing is like, none of us own these characters, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are not, right. mm-hmm. that's the other thing where people don't understand, like I'm not making like, they're like, well, right. you're a millionaire now. You, well, your characters yeah. are not speaking as you from your, dollars. Yeah, yeah, like, from your mansion not, in Homeby Hills. Yeah. yeah. I, I do not own this IP, you know, um, but so I think part of the like beauty, the the hard part and the beautiful part is like you have a turn, you get to take your turn, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, Ryan yeah. invented something and made something and then I got to take my turn and that was mm-hmm. really, really special. Um, and then, you know, uh, Kugler and Dominique are taking their turn. And, and when the Disney Plus series comes, Shanaka Hodge, who's an amazing mm-hmm. writer, um, who I actually, who was also a poet. So who I actually knew prior to I her taking that. on. Uh, yeah, it's great. Like poets are out here doing stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, like everybody gets to take their turn, you know. And I think that that's, I think that's hard for some people. Um, but yeah. it's really, really cool too. It's really cool to see where people take something. And mm-hmm. um I'm I'm lucky enough that I am a consultant on the on the TV show, and so um, you know that means like I made a lot of notes, and they can take it or leave it. Um, but something that Kelly Sudeconic said to me is like, for us as comics writers, when we see the stuff on screen, our job is not to litigate every kind of like biographical detail of the character, right. but to do our best to try to protect the core of who the character is. Mm. Um, and that's what I, you know, that's what I'm hoping to be able to do. And I, like, if if I had, you know, if somebody had told all of us 15 years ago, there's going to be a Spider-Man movie and yeah. this Spider-Man has no Uncle Ben. Yeah. Right? We would be like, what? Boo! Right? Like, that's yeah. like, but it, but it turns out, like, that's not what makes him Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Right? As yeah. it turns out. Like, we, we would never have known that unless somebody made that choice on screen. So, anyway, now I'm rambling. But, yeah, it's been, it's been wild. And Dominique is a, is a star. Um, and I really want every amazing thing for her. She's incredible. Um, and I hope people love seeing her on screen. You, you mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the ownership aspect. Like, mm-hmm. the, the fact that these are characters who come into 
your custody for a period of time. What's that like to be part of this broader, larger conversation, you know, almost like this huge wall in a public space that you get to write something mm-hmm. on and then walk right. away I from. And here. then, yeah, I was here. People get <laughs> to come up. Him. And yeah, I wonder, you know, just, you know, philosophically, what is that? What does that feel like? And what do you and what role do you think that plays in this kind of like broader, vast conversation that is now, you know, the MCU? Yeah, I think there's a cynical read on that and there's like an idealistic read on it. Absolutely. And depending on the day that you catch Absolutely. me, I, I have I have felt both polar ends <laughs> of this and everything in between. Um you know, on the idealistic end, you know, I wrote I wrote Marvel Team Up, which is a miniseries featuring um Kamala and, and Peter. Um and I went with the classic, it's a three issue miniseries, so I was like, bet body swap, right? (laughs) Freaky Friday, baby. Kamala becomes Peter. Peter becomes Kamala. Don't think about it too hard. Just, just, let's just, let's go. Um, That also, by the way, was one of the few moments where I've also had a back and forth with editorial because uh, there's a scene where um, Peter, uh, Peter's in Kamala's body and he's at school and uh, he thinks he has, she has this big presentation and she's like, don't ruin this for me. And he's like, yo, I'm like a scientist, like I'm going to kill your high school bio presentation. Like, don't even worry about it. And he gets to class and immediately is like, oh my God, I'm dying. Something horrible is happening to me. Uh, Like I'm being, this is like biological warfare (laughs) and he has to be taken out of class. And then later on, there's a scene of them sitting, you know, uh, looking over the city. And she's like, you had a cramp. Like, those are, yeah. that's, that's cramps, right? Like, and he's like, I thought I was going to die, right? And so, um, <laughs> so that was, that was a moment where uh, the word, the word cramp was, cannot appear. Uh, so we can, we can unpack that later. But anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Yeah, classic. Uh, so, but yeah, so when I was writing that series, literally, I would, I would wake up, I'd brush my teeth, I'd look in the mirror, and I would be like, I write words and Spider-Man says those words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's just like the basic fact of that. Like, you know, I would, I would go in the kitchen and grab my husband and be like, honey, I, I say the words and then they come out of Spider-Man's mouth. Like, I am the, <laughs> I have, I am the person who has the power to, to be the vector of Spider-Man. And that, like, like Spider-Man, like mm-hmm, maybe the most yeah. recognizable, iconic pop culture figure, like possibly ever, you know? Um, and so, like, on on moments when I feel idealistic about it, that's really magical. And and also, I think being part of the community of creators, yeah. you know, to have to have phone calls with people, you know, when um, when uh, Danny uh, Lore took over Champions, like having those conversations with Danny, right? Having conversations with Vita, yeah. having conversations with Solidity, two like, okay, icons, you know, amazing, you know, like. Okay, what are you doing with Miles here? What are we doing in Champions? Um, you know, Evan, North, like any any folks where we're crossing over things, it's really fun to be like, all right, what are you doing in your sandbox, and how can I make sure this matches up to my sandbox? You know, the cynical read of it is like, uh, it's a super bazillion d fulfilling d dollar mega corporation yeah. uh, that you know I produce really good work sometimes, and um, and that yeah, that creators have no. Uh, not only compensation financially, but like even just like acknowledgement, right? Mm-hmm. Can be a little fuzzy sometimes. And you know, you all have talked a lot about it, and folks can Google the the horror yeah. stories of just like I, I've definitely had the experience of sitting in a you know not not with Black Panther, but it, with other Marvel stuff, like sitting in a theater watching a movie that I know is going to make a bazillion d dollars, and being like, mm-hmm. is that is that my was that yeah. Yeah. a thing from my brand? Um, 
And that's a bad feeling. You know, it's a bad feeling. Um, It's also a bad feeling, I think, with the way some of the TV stuff has panned out, I think, for some of the writers in that room, right? Um, The ways that the writers' room on the TV shows are are very different from traditional writers' rooms. And some of the the hierarchy of power and control and decision-making is really different. And I think that's been a struggle for for some folks. Um, So, you know, I think that the like I try to maintain a healthy reality somewhere in the middle and you know maybe one day I'll just go full Alan Moore and just like, you know, <laughs> we can all only aspire you know, yeah, you know, yeah. but that's that's fine you know maybe maybe I'll get there but for for now it's still fun and I also to be honest with you I have a huge privilege of like I have a regular day job mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a professor mm-hmm. at a university right I have a I had a whole other writing career before comics and I have a whole other writing career outside of comics and that's also an immense privilege that makes it easy for me to be like okay cool I'm doing this and not that, uh, or I don't feel comfortable with this, or I feel icky about it, so I'm going to step away. And a lot of folks in this industry don't have that, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and so that's why the creator-owned space and you know Kickstarter projects and all that kind of stuff is really important. And I hope that for folks, if if you go and you read a big two comic by a writer and artist that you absolutely love, mm-hmm. um, like look them up and yes. sign up for their absolutely. newsletter and follow yeah. them on their socials yep. and you know pledge their Kickstarter thing and buy their creator-owned thing because that's it's called creator owned because that's what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing that they actually control and can can make money off of. Um, so yeah, I think it's 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 tough, and I think it's important to not um, be so idealistic about it, to not be honest yes. about that. Yeah, part. I think, and I think you really summed up the two most intrinsic things about making like what we call work for higher comics, which is yeah, we want to tell the best story, and you put everything into it, and. The companies know mm-hmm. that you have that excitement of writing exactly. the words that Spider-Man exactly. says or, you know, writing Godzilla, something that you love. Like, And they are aware that you will say, OK, I'm going to sign away any ownership of this right. because I would right. love to do it. It's it. That's the uh, historically that is the exchange that has been made between the two. Yep. And I live every day to hopefully try and make that change or, or evolve from the way that it was. There was a time in superhero comics where that was not the base level that was something that came around relatively recently in like the 70s when that sort of became a thing so yeah I think you summed it up but it's it's that really interesting thing because uh, you know I'm like I want comics to unionize uh we talk all the time about creator rights but I'm also like yeah we'll write a fucking x-men book like I I will do it like I I will will do it right now I will literally write the the softball x-men miniseries like hire me (laughs) and I'll and then I'll write something into the book about unions or something yeah right right right. (laughs) about how the softball team is actually just a metaphor for the union yeah exactly no, (laughs) no it's totally it's totally real and I think like you know uh, to a certain extent, I mean, I'm comfortable saying publicly, like, it is, this is the least financially lucrative thing I could be doing with mm-hmm. my time. Like, mm-hmm. I pretty much, pretty much do it for fun. Um, and But not only that, I mean, like, you know, the, the impact, the cultural impact yes. that you get to have is just really tremendous. And I think that it's, um, for me, it's just important to understand what my values are and what yeah. mm-hmm. what I want to do. And, you know, I've, I've said no to a bunch of Marvel stuff um, because I wasn't excited about it or I wanted somebody yeah. else to get an opportunity mm-hmm. or, you know, and I think the main thing is like, just just recognizing that the, the thing the thing being inherently exciting or a big honor doesn't mean it's exciting or a big honor for you, yeah. right? And doesn't mean it's a, always a good move for you and for your time calculus and for your, you know, way you want to make your money. And, and I think that that's, 
Yeah, like not letting the kind of glitz and glamour of the name recognition get you in a spot where you're like making stuff that you're not getting paid in a way that makes sense for your life. Yeah. Uh, Someone uh, recently told me there's creatively there's a huge power in no and that is the truth. Yeah. Oh, it's the best. It's the best. best. Eve, anything to plug? Yes, I would like to plug a couple things. Um, Coming December, Photon, Monica Rambeau, Photon number one, um, featuring an amazing black woman. If you don't know Monica Rambeau, get to know her. Um, She's incredible. Uh, Used to be the leader of the Avengers. Now she's trying to figure out her life. Um, I've been telling people if you are like an old school Marvel fan or if you are a person who um, feels like you're that underappreciated person in your life but you've never read a comic book before, like this is a comic that you will relate to. It's about um, trying to figure yourself out and it's really great. Um, And then coming March 2023, my first ever graphic novel uh, called Change the Game, which I co-wrote with Colin Kaepernick. Um, Wow. And it is coming out on Scholastic uh, in March 2023 and uh, for the young adult or the young adult at heart in your life. Eve, please come back. This has been delightful. Yeah. Yeah, come back anytime. Honor is all mine. I really appreciate y'all so much. Big thanks to Evel Ewing for appearing on the program. And, of course, the big thanks to Rosie Knight for co-hosting with me. Rosie, plugs, 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 plugs. What do you have to plug? Um, you can find me, uh, Rosie Marks, on Instagram and Letterboxd, where I'm starting to verge into Christmas movies, so come and judge me. Uh-oh. Yeah, I watch so many bad <laughs> Christmas movies. Like, I'm talking about Hallmark, Lifetime, everything. They're all there, and I make them in lists. Um, if you like Hearing about Riri Williams, I have a piece up at Polygon that's a kind of explainer, more in-depth explainer about that. And just other cool things coming up. You can check me writing about TV and stuff at IGN and Nerdist. And you can also read my comics. I have a website, rosieoliviaknight.com, because I haven't been bothered to change my URL yet to my proper name. But there you can read some free comics. You can read all of my thousands of articles. That's not hyperbolic. (laughs) And yeah, and, and then obviously here. Catch the next episode on November 18th. And of course, subscribe to the show on YouTube. Follow at XRVPod on Twitter. Maybe not for much longer on Twitter. We'll see about that uh, about somewhere else. But check out the Discord to meet and hang out with the uh, other X-Ray Vision fans. And of course, Rosie and I, we're active on there and we love to interact with you. Um, five-star ratings. We love them. We got to have them. We need them. Here's one from The Dot Potato. The nerd podcast we need. If there are nerd happenings, I know I can count on Jason or Rosie to not only cover it, but direct me to more resources. I've picked up comics, books, and shows that I wouldn't have sought out otherwise, and I owe it all to X-Ray Vision. Plus, they've got the best podcast theme song out there. Hands down, no contest. Thank you, The Potato. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. That's it for us. Bye. Bye.